You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Katarina Piovic, and she is running to be the president of Croatia from the Workers' Party. Today, she will be talking about the history of how Yugoslavia transformed from a socialist society to a neoliberal dystopian society. And she will talk about the consequences of capitalism on steroids in areas that are so subtle that we don't even understand, such as media and intellectual property. So, Katrina, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes, uh, thank you for calling me. So I am associate professor at Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences in Rijeka, Rijeka in Croatia. I work at the Department of Cultural Studies, um, where I mostly teach a cultural theory. And also I am a candidate of Workers' Front for forthcoming presidential elections. When's the election? Elections are taking place at the end of this year. I think that it will be uh, at the end of this year and it can be in the beginning of the next year. That depends on our current president. I'm just curious, like how are elections financed in Croatia? Well, if you are asking me about financing my campaign, it is mostly from our Workers' Front account. We don't have much money. We are in a better position than uh, before two years, I would say, because we entered some bodies of the local government. But uh, And also we have some uh, donations, but mostly we are financing this campaign from our account. Okay, so I hear in the 1990s you were an activist and you spoke against the rise of the far right. Can -hmm. you tell us a little bit about your activism? Well, uh, at the end of 19th, I was just a student and I was part of student movement at the end of 19th. So the name of movement was Movement of Student Initiatives. And we were all, of course, against far right. I was an editor at the moment of Cultural Magazine. And this magazine was censored because of some political texts and literary texts. So that was not at a, a political line of uh, this far right that was at the moment in this student center. So as a student, I fought against uh, this conservative backlash in Croatia and especially within these cultural and student organizations. That's amazing. So, since you're a socialist candidate running for president, what is your vision for the future? Well, firstly, we have to collect 10,000 signatures in just 15 days after our current president, Kolinda Grabar-Kitarovic, announces elections. 
We hope that we will manage to collect these 10,000 signatures, but yes, um, Workers Front and I decided to enter this campaign and mostly because this is an opportunity for us to promote vision of democratic socialism. So democratic socialism is our first goal as a vision of the society that is uh, based on the different orders, different um, political directions than uh, capitalism that we are experiencing for the last 29 years. So Croatia was a socialist country. Of course, it wasn't democratic socialism that we are uh, fighting for, but it was a very important experiment. And uh, we are very proud of this experiment. And after almost 30 years of capitalism, people in Croatia are uh, more familiar with the idea to reconstruct the form of socialism. And in mostly because of the pensions, because of the low salaries, because of the uh, very poor conditions that Croatians are living in. And because of very huge immigration, uh, economic immigration that we are facing. People in Croatia are, I would say, open to the ideas of socialism. Oh, okay. So when Tito was around and Yugoslavia was together, it seemed like it was a pretty good socialist economy. Mm -hmm. But... When Yugoslavia separated and broke up, what do you think happened? Like, what went wrong? Uh, well, social, uh, socialist Yugoslavia separated from, uh, Croatia separated from Yugoslavia almost 30 years ago. Uh, Croatia became formally independent. But we are actually, we have never been more dependent, I would say, than ever because of these neoliberal economic measures that we are living in. So I would say that separation from Yugoslavia and war that were, uh, was taking place in this region actually brought us to very low neoliberal economic situation. So we live in the capitalism, but it is not capitalism of Germany or uh, Sweden. Well, it is the capitalism of periphery. And this capitalism, uh, I would say, looks uglier and more brutal than capitalism of the country, the European Center. How is it more brutal? Like, Can you give an example? Well, this capitalism that we are experiencing is really brought us in a bad situation. We have, for example, almost 28% of people living in the poor conditions. We have very high unemployment, 10%, but it doesn't reflect the 10% doesn't reflect the real situation because of some malversation with this number of unemployed people, but uh, even this uh, percentage is really high. For example, Croatia is in the first place of atypical contract, working contract, usually contracts uh, for three months. So we have 80.4% of such contracts in Croatia. Europe averages only 23 
The second place uh, is occupied by France, for example, with a percentage of only 4.8% of this temporary uh, atypical uh, contract. So Croatia also has, uh, as you probably know, huge immigration of working population. About 300,000 people immigrated. So uh, since the beginning of crisis, 2007-2008, uh, every 11th working position was lost. So these numbers are only more insight in what we are experiencing here. Salaries are also very low, among lowest in Europe. Um, for example, average salary in Croatia is approximately 800 euros. So Croatia is really facing um, very difficult times because maybe it is also because socialism in Yugoslavia was a pretty decent system for majority of people. We uh, had pretty good standards. So I would say that this capitalism in, uh, in periphery looks really uglier for us than uh, capitalism uh, for Germans, for example. <laughs> so when they opened up the markets in Croatia, mm-hmm. when, was there something like shock therapy with massive privatization? Yes, we have a massive privatization of those huge uh, major firms in Croatia. And those privatizations really didn't end well. So, for example, telecommunications were privatized. Although people uh, built this infrastructure by themselves, so shareholders became private persons, but actually, or Croatian uh, people should have had those shareholders. But um, those shares, those are, for example, it is only one small example of this privatization that was really not going in the direction of better living for a majority of people in Croatia. And were the people who bought these firms, like, were they Croatian or were they from Europe, like outside of Croatia? Well, for example, telecommunications went to German telecom. So this privatization was done in a way that uh, German telecom took our uh, major company. For example, a uh, Hungarian company took big oil company, Enos. And those are examples, only examples of these privatizations. And most privatizations uh, were done in a way that majority of people in Croatia think that those privatizations were illegal and that those privatizations should be reconsidered again and uh, legally processed. Yeah, so it seems like Germany's getting rich by extracting wealth from Croatia. Like, that's the main problem, right? Well, I don't think that uh, Germany is getting richer only because Croatia ended up with these poor privatizations, of course. But uh, we have to be aware of uh, the fact that uh, most consumerism in Croatia, most products in Croatia are imported from um, rich European countries. 
and our export is very poor. So we have this disbalance between rich center and poor periphery. And also, we cannot uh, compete with those in this uh, structural uh, capitalist context. So we are really, and we at the moment, for example, we have a situation with shipyards uh, that are uh, closing and that are for the moment in very poor situation. One of the major uh, shipyards in Croatia, Uljanik in Pula, is in, uh, uh, workers are in the strike and they didn't get their payment for seven months now. So uh, our industry and our export industry, shipyard is one of the last export industry in Croatia. Our industry, uh, export industries are actually very, very low. So standard in Croatia is very poor. And at the moment, we have uh, 15% of working population that migrated from Croatia. It is very, very high uh, percentage of working people going abroad. So uh, young people mostly are not seeing uh, themselves in Croatia as uh, Croatian citizens. And it is actually the result of this policy. So can we go back to 1995 or 96? I forgot when. What was the role that the NATO coalition played for Croatia? Like, did they accelerate the privatization or what did they do? Well, NATO bombarded Serbia. Uh, it was really a situation in which this country founded itself because of wars in this region, but nevertheless, innocent people died and it was really aggressive mission from NATO. A few days ago, uh, Serbia uh, remembered this because it was uh, exactly 20 years ago. Unfortunately, NATO is doing uh, its business in in the uh, awkward way. So this interventionism is not uh, supported in many situations by a democratic majority. I would say that this situation was really such. Okay, so let's go back to like the breakup. It seems like the far-right people, even the Ustasi ideals, started to get strong in Croatia. Why do you think that happened? Well, uh, far-right is rising, which is not something uh, specific for Croatia, I would say, but a part of global and um, surely European trends. I would say that there are several reasons for that. But the role of war in Croatia is only a part of it, uh, really. The other trends are uh, connected to European and European politics. I would say that the problem with European politics lately really is that fascist and uh, communist politics are uh, equated. So we had uh, these politics very often European Parliament. So I would say that this really gives a push toward a very bad trend of uh, fascistization of, of Europe. I would say that, that this is not situation only in general, specific for Croatia. 
oh yeah, Ukraine and Poland and Lithuania, they're having that historical revisionism. Mm-hmm. In America, there's it's almost like a commandment from God. They're like free speech, free speech. But it seems to make the far right stronger. What is the debate that should be in the public sphere as legitimate dissent? And what should be excluded? Like, how do we make that judgment? Well, of course, the freedom of speech is part of our constitution. However, uh, hatred of other nations, religions, uh, genders, are, and races is, uh, are forbidden. So uh, I would say that minorities should be protected. Absolute uh, free speech is, of course, always a matter of debate. But when when the minorities are at stake, when we are talking about minorities, I think that they should be protected. So how does one understand what is legitimate dissent and what should be not allowed in society? Well, I think that this um, is pretty much uh, what our constitution says, that if uh, somebody's oriented and political uh, agenda is only oriented toward hatred of other nations, for example, it should be forbidden and we must protect minorities. We had a situation in Croatia many times that were typical, I would say, for this debate about uh, free speech. And of course, every time uh, we are talking about political issues, which we should uh, debate about it, but where it comes to other nations, minority nation as Serbs are in Croatia, for example, when we are talking about religions that are in minority, or if we are talking about, for example, gender issue and issues connected to races, uh, we should actually have this constitutional uh, protection. And uh, those protections are in a way good. Of course, it is not good to, and it is not politically wise to present every uh, speech as problematic or to forbid every political aggressive speech, so to say. But when we come to these minorities, I would say that protectionism is necessary. Yeah. Um, one other question related to how the far right gained power. Do you believe the former president, Franjo Trudman, was wrong when he tried to do the reconciliation of, like, the Ustazi? Mm-hmm. Well, although he spoke uh, about reconciliation, I would say it was a reconciliation a- aimed at uh, more or less neutralizing the horrors of fascist regimes in Croatia during the World War II. So the idea is uh, really not related, and the idea is not aiming toward uh, real reconciliation, but neutralization of the 
horrors of the fascist regimes uh, of Anna Kuchman was calculating about uh, victims of uh, Yasenovats. He tried to undermine those victims. So I would say that this reconciliation really was a false one. The idea was false one. But I would say also that the idea of, uh, of reconciliation is, of course, older from uh, Tujman's argument, and uh, it is, again, I would say that it is important to stress the fact that it, that it is not uh, something specific and specific idea for the Croatia. So it started with, I would say, 1998, uh, with a debate whether communism and fascism were totalitarian twins, what Fure stated whether they were totalitarian twins sharing their same origins, or, uh, as then Snolte argued, that fascism was a response to communism. So this debate was symptomatic. I am not saying that it pushed this idea of uh, neutralization, the horrors of fascism, but actually it was symptomatic. And again, we have 2009 and European Parliament resolution on European consciousness and totalitarianism, and also the European Day of Remembrance uh, for Victims of Stalinism and Nazism. So I would say that this resolution and this Remembrance Day, uh, European Remembrance Day, again opened the Pandora's box and actually are also partially oriented toward this uh, neutralization of fascism. And today we have to fight as anti-fascists, we have to fight uh, to bring this view of history again backwards and to say that fascism was really something that cannot be compared to anything else. So this Kujma's idea of national reconciliation, I think that it really fits to historical uh, processes. And maybe you know that Tujman was a historian, so he perfectly fitted in this idea that was rolling uh, for uh, years when uh, he decided to go out with it. I also think NATO or EU even is abusing this because they, I don't know, they want to have like that Cold War mentality back again. And I wonder if it's kind of like their reaction with regards to Russia, like in America, they literally are arming the Azov in Ukraine. So what do you think? Is it like something that the EU is kind of abusing? Yeah, I, I think that EU is not uh, homogenic in this. I would say that, of course, we have left wing parties uh, fighting this in EU Parliament very strongly. And only a few years ago in Ukraine, they had this day of remembrance. And I think that only one third of countries, uh, EU countries decided to uh, to put their signature on a resolution they came with in this manifestation. And we can see that EU is very uh, polarized. It is heterogeneous on this issue. It is not something that all EU members and all, all EU politicians, they are not thinking the same. They are not on the same page. 
in this issue, but uh, the fact is that 2009 opened this Pandorian box and that after this European Parliament resolution, and it was really funny that the European Parliament resolution had uh, the, uh, the, the main motive that all victims should be honored, that we should end up with past, uh, that we should move uh, from this World War II team, but actually what happened was the opposite of that. And uh, this opened a uh, Pandorian box, and after this uh, European Parliament resolution, actually what happened was the opposite of some kind of reconciliation. I think that we today, the idea of World War II and the political positions that formed after and during the World War II, those are uh, more alive than ever. So we cannot uh, end this debate by saying that we have uh, impression national reconciliation and that everything will be fine after that. Actually, what Pujman did also in Croatia, it was he started the debate and he started the fight. Uh, Anti-fascist forces in Croatia are fighting against this neutralization of fascist uh, regimes. So every year, for example, we have this Remembers Day at Bleiburg. It was the moment in after World War II when uh, partisans but also it was civilians in this uh, killings uh, present. So uh, this uh, every year this brings another very painful uh, debate and uh, painful historical uh, debate in Croatia. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter and historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters, and that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. On a totally separate note, I was reading your paper on Marxism and open source software and intellectual property. So I hope you don't mind if we pivot to that. What do you think of the capitalist mythology of like requiring a monopoly to incentivize innovation society? Well, I seriously doubt that any initiative against free access to information is oriented towards protection of inventions or protection or uh, of alters. Actually, what I also stated in my books and what I uh, was interested in, I think that this concept of general intellect discussed by Karl Marx is more appropriate to elaborate what is going on with this invention and this author's right. So the concept of general intellect, Marx said that the certain stage of the, their development, the material productive forces come into conflict with existing relations 
of production. I think that this digital technology actually brought us in this and a similar historical period of material productive forces coming into conflict with existing relations in production. And we are experiencing this kind of conflict, unfortunately. What is going on at the moment is what Marx called the factoring of bringing technology into the state, into the structural possibility of making profit and not what technology would do if there is no capitalism around of bringing people together, connecting people, making these things and information more accessible and um, So, like, medicines are protected with IP, but people are dying because of that. Like, what should be the ethical future of for intellectual property? Well, unfortunately, probably capitalism wins this battle, but um, the user's freedom will be limited. But, um, of course, one important lesson is here. We have this situation that Marx described, which is really important and uh, interesting for us because we can see that there is no inventor that is inventing something from the null, from the zero that uh, we are actually experiencing technologies like Google or Apple or etc. that are related mostly not to private venture capital, but actually to public capital. Taxpayers' money is potentially and oftenly misdirected to those firms in the name of progress. For example, Google success was founded by as you probably know, Public Sector National Science Foundation friend Mariana Mazzucato in her The Entrepreneurial State describes this situation. So we can see that if we want in the future to use technology for the good of the many, we uh, must see this opportunity to develop technology, but not for the private interest for the profit interest, but for the interest of, of society and well, what I majority. see often in America is universities and government builds the technology, but then they sell it off to a private company for Amazon to manage or something. And that's the worst of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. One thing, um, you also noted this... Like, I was reading your other paper on media critique, and at least in the U.S., it seems all major news outlets follow the national security consensus, for example. Everyone has a uniform voice on whether or not Iraq had WMD in 2003. But now in 2019, it's gotten stronger, like, why is this happening in the age of social media? And why aren't dissenting voices getting louder? Well, uh, of course, a consensus over obviously fake facts is dangerous. For example, everybody knows that Iraq didn't have the weapons of mass destruction, and yet democratic West is playing the game of this justify interventionism. 
But again, the important lesson can be uh, learned from it, and I would remember the study, Hardenegri study, uh, Empire, where they described actually what they thought it is a concept of the youth ad bellum, righteous war, uh, right to war, uh, sorry, which is uh, actually what is happening here. They said that uh, the consensus uh, over uh, interventionism must be manufactured. It must be gained. So this consensus is mostly the media produced consensus. And this is uh, something that presents one of the key shifts in politics today. We have the imperative of in order to intervene, uh, military actions must gain social consensus, so to say, that is manufactured in the public sphere. So again, we have another example, a more recent one of Venezuela. We can say that Maduro is responsible for many things, but he was legally elected president. And actually, he was legally elected with high numbers and uh, more and uh, even higher electorate, higher numbers of people voted for Maduro than, for example, for um, any other European president. Uh, at the moment, Macron was elected with, uh, with, with half of his <laughs> yeah. uh, percentage. And, and uh, he also have problems in his country, but nobody thinks that he should be released of his position. So we have this really violent and uh, non-democratical change of power in Venezuela. Juan Guaido is not elected president. So... Those are examples of this really dangerous consensus over obviously fake facts and uh, dangerous interpretations of this use of bello or this right to war, right to politically engage um, in interventionist way in in other in other countries. Yeah, I'm just surprised how little dissent is allowed in the U.S. And it seems like in capitalism, they don't have to outright ban anything. But if you say something and you lose your job, that is equivalent of silencing dissent. It's like more subtle, but it has the same effect. This is the problem of, of democratic solutions and dem- democracy in Western countries. Alain Badiou wrote about it, and I would say that his study uh, ethics is mostly is uh, really one of the most important books and philosophical books on this issue, because actually he pointed to the fact that, of course, we have these democratic countries, Western countries that are highly interested in uh, human rights, but at the same time, we have a situation uh, where America mostly, sorry, interventionism works against this democratic system. And also the important fact is that we have a situation in uh, every capitalist country at the moment that democracy is highly valued, that every citizen declaratively has a political and social right. But as uh, Alain Badiou noted at the same time, 
we have illegal people, illegal citizens that won't have any rights. So this situation is symptomatic of this uh, politics that Alain Badiou uh, called um, capital parliamentarism. It is uh, mostly a system that is oriented toward capitalism and democracy only works in the favor of this capitalism. That is true. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter or Facebook, how do they find you? I have uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook and Instagram channels, and you can find me under the name Katarina Peovic, which is in um, English better pronounced as Katarina Peovic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, and I wish you all the luck, and I really hope you're able to get a lot of seats in the parliament at least. <laughs> Aisha, thank you very much. Well, have a great day. Uh, you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show. <laughs>